If you're just now joining us in the series, uh, we're coming uh, not to a, a conclusion, actually, Conclusion of the series, maybe, but the series and the story and the, and the, and the recovery, if you will, will continue on the rest of our lives. And we'll be talking about that next week. I'll tell you what. It's next, uh, following, following this, uh, this study. But for some of us, we're kind of happy with, uh, our lives. We're happy with kind of where they're at, what, what we've been able to maintain and control and, and organize and, and fix the broken pieces. But there's, there's some of us that are still struggling with that 10 to 15 to 20 percent that we can't put our arms around. And this is just a quick fly-through review for those who haven't been with us. But in that, that struggle with that, that last bit, some of us have become complacent with that. We're fine. In fact, that's our last little part that we're going to hold on to for ourselves. Hey, God, I've given you 85 percent of me. You know, let me keep the rest for myself. And we kind of get happy with that and content with that. And we kind of justify that. Or we say, hey, after all, I'm human, you know, therefore, I, I you know, I'm, I'm never going to be perfect. And no, you're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. But it doesn't give us an excuse to continue on in some areas of brokenness in some areas of stuckness that we really should be having some victory in, especially after this many years of quote-unquote walking with God. We should be progressing forward uh, uh, further down that track, but we become, again, complacent, content, we've given up, or we just have beaten ourselves up because we can't seem to get victory in this. And what are these areas, these, these areas where we get stuck? One is a dark alley. These are emotional wounds that we've gone through in our life. We've experienced somewhere in our life, sometimes decades ago, but we experienced them nonetheless. And through experiencing those, those have held us captive and we can't seem to get past them. They're holding us back. We tend, if we don't find full recovery and victory from that, we tend to then pass on those wounds, sadly. Whether it's a temper, whether it's a way we process through things, it's a feeling, it's a, it's a way we even do sexuality. That tends to be passed down in an un- unhealthy manner. And so must be aware of that. Also detours. We face detours all the time. All right, whether it's pride, possessions, or progress in life, success, silver, sex, whatever you want to call it, these are the things that grab a hold of us, get us off track, and get us on a wrong track, and get us on that detour, and we're, again, get stuck in that element. Ruts is another element that we get stuck in. It could be, again, a habit. It could be some hang-up that we've had, a generational sin that's been passed down from years to years. These are areas we get stuck in. Another one that's shamefully even, shouldn't even have to mention this one. But it's so true. We get stuck, we get stalled. And we get stalled in in our ability to be able to say no to God. When God says, this is the path I want you to go, and we say, no, I don't want to go that path. Or we go a path and we say, God, would you bless the path that I've chosen to go? Or or we're able to say no to God when God clearly gives us a clear command in Scripture and principle in Scripture. And we're just able to say, no, thank you. But when we develop that level of, um, I don't know if you call it backbone or or, a rebellious spirit, it's very, very detrimental to us ever being able to really progress fully to where God wants us to be. And what happens in this, and we start getting in this mode of, I want to get out of this. This is a cycle for me. I've been going through this for years. My spouse has said, if you don't get help, I'm leaving you, kind of thing. I've spent hundreds of dollars in books and counselors trying to get help from these areas that I'm struggling with. And what it comes out, what it generates in our life are these three words, guilt, shame, and regret. 
And again, different ones will, will generate a different emotion inside of you. And that's just kind of like putting your hand on a stove. You put your hand on a hot stove, it's going to burn. It's an emotional response, a physical response to something that you've done. You're going to have an emotional response whenever you get outside the will of God. And it's going to be typically guilt, shame, or regret. And again, we can outline the scriptures and we can talk about how David and we can talk about how Joseph and we can talk about from beginning to end, Adam and Eve and all the points in between on how they dealt with this area. And how do we take these three words that kind of grip us and that we end up living with and we can't, we, we want to medicate them, we want to find some kind of uh, medicine for it, we, we want to change something up. How do we get those words tamed in, un, uh, under control? And the very first, we're kind of building a pyramid around this or a triangle around it. The very first word is the word attraction. We've got to starve that attraction. We've got to rearrange those attractions. There's a fleshly paradigm that we're all walking in just naturally. We talked about that last week. And in that paradigm, you're just going to go down that. It's a natural, bodily, innate, nurture and nature coming together. Attractions that we carry with us. They're lusts. They're desires. These are the materials. to the building blocks of shame and regret. It's the very foundation. If we don't get attractions tamed in, under control, rearranged, reprioritized in a new direction, a new attraction, then we're going to find ourselves struggling with this the rest of our life. Todd Hunter, I quoted him last week. It's worth hearing it again. Temptation doesn't produce desire or attraction. Attraction or desires makes temptation possible. So if the attraction isn't there, the temptation is not going to be there. To beat temptation, I need to reorder my desires. Hang on to that phrase. And you need to be asking yourself throughout this message and throughout the rest of this time and throughout the rest of your life, where are my desires? What do I need to reorder? How do I need to restructure? How do I need to get new desires and attractions? Because the ones that I'm on lead me to shame, regret, and guilt. How do I get off of this? For example, I can remember in, 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 in junior high even uh, that I had some good friends that started drinking, started playing quarters and started doing different kinds of shots and kind of stealing beer from their parents' refrigerators and all that kind of stuff. And so we started having beer parties when I was in ninth grade. Now, I can remember I wanted to be cool with all the other kids in ninth grade. And so what I did is I went to the party and they grabbed a beer and they gave me a beer. And, and so I started to jug that beer down. It was like vomit, to be honest with you. It tasted horrible. I got halfway through it, kept telling myself, you got to drink it, you got to drink it to be cool. And I kept trying to down it, and it was horrible tasting. And I got halfway through it, and I put it down. My friend said, you got to acquire a taste. you got to acquire a taste. Okay, I've never acquired the taste. I've tried it in so many different forms now. I've given up. I don't drink alcohol, not from a conviction point of view, but just because it's nasty vomit. So I, 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 I think about it. Saves me a whole lot of money too and a whole lot of shame, guilt, and regret that could come out of me misdrinking and abusing something like that. But acquiring the taste is the key phrase there. There's so much of this world that we don't have to acquire the taste for. It just comes natural to us. But there are things in this world that we will acquire a taste for. Why don't we acquire a new taste? Why don't we get on a new track, a new paradigm? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let the Holy Spirit, and this is what I said last week, and that last week's message was the key to it all. Let, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature 
craves, desires, lust after. So again, last week we talked about just this one base word. If we don't get attractions reordered, if we don't get desires reordered, if we don't get a new desire, a new attraction in our life, then we're going to be messed up. And we're going to be struggling with this, again, this self-deprecating lifestyle uh, for the rest of our lives. So we're going to have to have a new desire. I think Psalms gives us a great one simple idea of what that new desire should look like. Psalm 37, verse 4, worth memorizing. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires, the cravings of your heart. Oh, Mike, you just talked about cravings and attractions, desires being bad and evil and ungodly and of the flesh and of nature and all that kind of stuff. That's right. If you have a new relationship with Christ, if you have a delight in the Lord, if you have a love relationship with God, guess what? You're going to have new desires. And guess what God's going to want to do? He's going to love doing. He's going to love giving you your desires. But until you get the attractions, the desires, the lust tamed in, under control, rearranged, starved out, and built in new desires into your life, then it will be hard. Life principle for you, new desires requires a new love. When you have a new passionate love for Christ, guess what? A lot of those desires for the things of the world, they won't be there. Guess what? Here, Guys, listen to this. You have a new, a passionate love for your wife. All of a sudden, all the other women, beautiful women, younger women, whatever women that are out there, all of a sudden, you don't even see them anymore because you are so madly in love with the wife that God gave you and you see her as a favor from God. All of a sudden, again, what you've just done is you've reordered your attraction. You just put it in the right order. Now, I want to give you the second word today that we're looking at. Again, just building a a pyramid or a triangle, if you will, to try to overcome this. It's the word opportunity. This opportunity that uh, that we deal with on a regular basis because they're out there. They're going to be out there. They're going to be all around us. And you know, listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the kind of guy who likes an adrenaline rush. I like to live life on the edge. But there's living life on the edge for fun. And then there's living life on the edge and just being outright foolish. All right, if you're going to go parachute, if you're going to bungee jump, if you're going to do things like that, hey, that's a great adrenaline rush. Go, go ahead and do that. But if you're going to see how close you can get to an affair, you are being stupid. You're getting really really close to trouble. If you're going to get yourself as close to financial bankruptcy, and you don't go in saying that, but you go in spending, 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 and you never get that spending under control, and you're spending more than, you, than you're making, and you just, all of a sudden, you're going to get so close to the edge, and all of it's going to take is one bad day on the job, one bad day in the market, one bad day, and all of a sudden, your notes are going to be recalled, and all of a sudden, you're in a different situation. And there's going to be opportunities that are out there. I had a one of my mentors growing up was Adrian Rogers in ministry. He had this same passion, desires every other man had. And he said when he was in college, he had this one statement written above his desk. He who would not fall ought not walk in slippery places. He who would not fall ought not walk in slippery places. Listen, don't see how close you can get to an affair, to bankruptcy, to losing your job, to losing your integrity, to losing your temper. Don't see how close you can get Back away from it. Run from it. 
Because those opportunities are there, we're going to have to make sure that we avoid the opportunities that are out there. And if the opportunities and attractions ever, ever, ever meet up, and you don't have new attractions, you don't have, you don't have your opportunities all in line, guess what? You're setting yourself up for a horrible situation. Let me play out a scenario with you. Let's just say on that whole adultery relationship thing. If you all of a sudden find yourself attracted to someone, you find yourself kind of thinking about this person more than you're thinking about your spouse. You find yourself drawn into this person and flirting with them. Oh, we're just flirting. We're just friends. You find yourself doing that kind of maneuvering. And all of a sudden they find themselves enjoying that. All of a sudden what was not an opportunity before becomes maybe an opportunity. Opportunity and attraction, when they come together, are a deadly force. A great book I read for this series, Shirley Glass's book, Not Just Friends, talks about the progression of an affair, how it starts as just friends, and then it moves beyond that, and then it moves to the disaster and the cleanup that follows it. Shirley Glass is a counselor, has been counseling people who've gone through affairs for a long time, did a lot of research in this. And this is one of the statements that she made in the book. General principle is that interest creates opportunity or attraction creates opportunity. Conversely, lack of interest creates a blindness to opportunity. Now, this is true in any, this is not just sexual deviations, okay? We talked about some of that last week. This could be in any, any area. This opportunity word here is going to be our key word for today because we're going to get this under control. There's so many opportunities out there for you to make more or lose more money. There's so many opportunities out there for you to get ahead. If you're not careful, you'll compromise your integrity getting ahead. There's so many opportunities out there in your addiction field that if you're not careful, you'll find yourself sucked in. Beware of the opportunities. Take your Bibles, be finding the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I want to take one of these opportunities. I want to take one of these areas that we talked about last week, emotional inflammation, if you were here. I want to talk about it as one of the areas that people get stuck in because even Paul was talking about And if you really read it through the lenses of how we can get stuck in this area, you can see how he addresses it. In just two verses, he gives four imperative commands, and we get three lessons on how to deal with anger. All right, anger is a natural emotion. There is, or anger is natural. Anger is acceptable under certain guidelines. You find God angry. You find Jesus angry. So from that alone, I'm going to say that anger is acceptable. Now, there is unacceptable anger. And so what, what Paul does here in a matter of two verses is he brings it out and he says it like this. Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us the guidelines for being angry in two verses. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, I want to look at that. He gives three statements. We're only going to deal with one of them. He says, by the way, if you're angry, just be angry. Just don't sin in that anger. So what you need to see in that is there are limitations to anger. If your anger is taking you to the point that you become physical, you become violent, when you raise your voice, you lose your temper, you, you, you kind of do that kind of thing, then, then you don't have limits in place, all right? You need to have some limits, some parameters. I'm not going to cross 
that line, okay? So be angry, but don't sin with your anger. And then he goes on and he says, and let the sun go down. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what was he saying there? In a metaphor way, he was saying there needs to be a time, time limit to your anger. If you're still angry, even more angry than you were when you found out or when that happened to you, whatever that is, if you're more angry now than you were three months ago, then there's probably something wrong with your anger. If you can't get past your anger of something that happened to you 10 years ago, there's probably something wrong with your anger. If you can't get past it in your marriage for months, there's probably something wrong with your anger. You need to have a time limit on it. There needs to be something out there. But I'm not going to deal with any of that, all right? I want to deal with the number, verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. What does that mean? The devil's not in my argument right now with my spouse. The devil's not in my argument right now with my boss. The devil's not in my argument right now with whomever it is. Why in the world does the devil have to come into this? Because this is what happens. When we let anger go to uh, to the boiling pot, when we let anger go on and on and we feed it and we stoke it and we fan it and we don't ever stop it, guess what we're doing? We are creating, hear this, an opportunity for the devil. This word opportunity is the Greek word topos, which means place. You're creating a place. You're creating a vacancy. You're creating a gap, if you will, inside of your life. You're creating this place. Even in Galatians, we read it last week, Galatians 5.13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So this word opportunity is a really key word here. And again, back in Ephesians, it says, don't give the opportunity to the devil. What does that mean, this topos word? What does that mean? It means to create a vacuum, a space, an emptiness, a gap, if you will. You ever been to London? You ever traveled the underground there, their, their subway system? You'll see the sign, something like this, mind the gap. I want to say today, mind the gap. I want you to mind the vacuum. I want you to mind the emptiness, the place that maybe you have created or allowed to be created inside of your heart, in your life, as an opportunity for the devil. Because here's what happens in this space and time, in this attitude, in this, in this lustful thought, in whatever. If the opportunity ever presents itself, you will jump on it. And you've created a vacancy for the devil to be there. All right, let's, let's talk about this. What happens then? What does it mean to create space or an opportunity for the devil in us? Number one, it's when we surrender a portion of ourselves back to God, back to the devil. We, I'm talking to Christians today, hopefully you're a follower of Christ. If you're not, please listen in because as you become a follower of Christ, hopefully you will not create opportunity. But what happens is Christ frees us from the slavery of sin. He frees us from the penalty of sin. He gives us freedom. In fact, uh, in, again, Galatians 5, 1 is what we read last week. I think it's the prime verse of this entire series. Christ has set us free to live a free life. Beautiful. I want that, God. I want it all the way. So don't, so take your stand. Never again let anyone Put a harness of slavery around you. Don't allow space. Don't allow a gap. Don't allow a vacuum. Don't allow a corner, a crevice, a closet. Don't allow a bedroom. Don't allow any space in your life 
that Satan, the devil himself, could occupy. Don't allow that opportunity for him to be there. Now, I do not believe that Satan can possess a believer, but I do believe he can oppress a believer. I do believe he can deceive believers. I do believe he can still penetrate their heart and infect their minds and their life in a very powerful way, in a very life-altering way. But listen to this, believers. I don't believe he can do it without our permission. I want to go to that phrase that we just read, verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. If you have your Bible, circle the word give. It's the Greek word dunomai, which is actually means this to us. It means it's in a present active, indicative, present active imperative form. It's the idea that you yourself in the present right here and now, it's not something passive happening to you. It is something that you do. You do this. Satan doesn't invade your life uninvited. We create opportunity. We create a gap. We put out a vacancy sign. When we allow any sin, anger is the example he uses here, anger to go on and on, lust to go on and on, unaddressed, unrepentant of, unconfessed, When we allow any of those sins to go on and on in our life, we are creating a vacuum, a room, a gap where Satan can come in and be a part. Scott Morrow, who's a former missionary to Nairobi, Kenya, and a professor at Wheaton College, said it like this. This word means handles. The fact that we give Satan handles in our life. Think about a handle on a door. The door is a hundred times bigger than a handle. But if you don't have access to that handle, you can't open the door. You can't unlock the door. But if you just have 10% of the door, you get total access to the rest of the house. If Satan has just 10% access, can he get access to the rest of you? You better believe it. What you do is you create a handle. It's the little things. French writer in the 18th century said it like this, but the most dangerous thing is that the soul, by the neglect of little things, becomes accustomed to unfaithfulness. If an 18th century French writer doesn't do it for you, let's look at a 21st century football coach. Maybe he'll do it for you. Tony Dungy said it like this, death by inches is due to the small details tripping people up rather than the big things. Look up here, children of God. Life principle. If you're a child of God today, the only right Satan has in your life is the right you give him. If you open up, if you create a vacuum, if you do not address the sin that maybe has caused your stuckness, if you do not address that, then you are opening up and you are giving a portion of yourself over. He's not going to take it. You're going to give it. And when you give it, 
you create that vacuum for him to come in and to be a part and to make himself at home. Lori and I have, from the beginning of our marriage, made the commitment that we are going to give 10% off the top of everything that we make to the Lord. We don't negotiate with that. We're going to make sure that we live within our means. There are certain things that we've made a commitment about our money that we don't want any of it, 10% or 1%, to be missed by God. Another example is words. Lori and I are spirited people. Uh, that's a good way to say that we have an opinion about everything. When two opinion people get married, they create a whole lot of different opinions about each other and they create a whole lot of friction. You take spirits and put them together, you create gas. You create gas, you create explosions. And that's what we had. So we had all this explosion happen in our marriage. We learned early on after lots of yelling at each other, after slamming of the doors with each other, walking out, saying, I'm not coming back with each other. And then we realized this was just, we can't one-up one another. Listen, the next one-up was physical. We can't go there. We can't go there. So we started putting parameters around how we say, what we say, when we say it, all that kind of stuff because we, listen, I don't want to give an opportunity for the devil to have all of my life by just not being able to control my words. There's, there's not a whole lot of people in this world that have hurt me deeply. I could probably count on one hand some wounds that I carry that I have to deal with uh, all my life. I'll have to deal with them. But I, I can only count a few people that would fall into that camp. When I was a sophomore in high school, I had a run in, sophomore in college, excuse me, I had a run in with one of, uh, one of the situations that I'm referring to now as a wound. And in that run in, on September 25th in 1988, at 10.30 at night in my dorm room, I wrote this letter. I wrote all that out. I wrote a two and a half page letter and I included some other things in there. And it wasn't just a matter of me speaking my mind. It was not that. In fact, I will say that this letter contains a whole lot of truth because there was a whole lot of lies being spoken. And there was also some grace. Because my, my appeal, my plea was that this would not stay this way. I want reconciliation. I want to be right. I want us to be right. I want us to be whole. But right now we cannot be whole with the way things are. That was my sophomore year in college. I wish to say it got better, but this letter was written to the same person in March 27th, 2009. Now, I know some of y'all are itching to know who they are, and I'm not going to tell you who they are. If you know my story, some of y'all will know who, who it is, but that's not, that, that's not important. That's not what I'm trying to point out. I'm trying to point out that these were real wounds that hurt really deeply. And, and writing the letters, and each of those letters contain both grace and truth. Truth and grace. This needs to be stated because this is truth, and this needs to be stated because I want better relationship here. This isn't right. We aren't right. We've got to make this right. And I can tell you right now that it's not any better. But what is better is my own heart. I feel so much more freedom to live and to love and to, and to correct for the future moving forward in my own family.
I say all that to just say that I am not going to allow anger or any other sin. I pray to God to create a vacuum that Satan can move in. I'm not going to give him that much space. I'm not going to give it to him. Me giving it to him. I'm not going to do that. Number two. When we give the devil the little bit of space, number two, is he builds a citadel in there. He builds a bunker in there. He builds a strong tower in there. He builds something in there. And we will struggle with this again for the rest of our lives. And I'm not talking about any gross, you know, immoral front page of the paper sins. We're just talking about jealousy. We're just talking about self-centeredness. We create a space. Jot this verse down. James chapter 3 verse 15. Jealousy and selfishness is not God's. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I create a demonic place in my life when I am self-centered, when I am jealous. Simon we dealt with a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 8 where we see a believer who is struggling. Though he is free, he is also still bound in his sin. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, you find an example of active church members in the church in Jerusalem. In the very beginning, the earliest church, you find a situation in Acts chapter 5 where Peter points at them. And by the way, don't, don't try to excuse them off as, as being unbelievers. I believe some of the greatest scholars such as F.F. F. Bruce have said, no, these were believers. There was just something that happened inside of them. And this is what Peter said happened inside of them. Why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter himself struggled with this. In one point of, uh, of the Gospels, you have Jesus looking at Peter saying, Peter, you're a rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The very next narrative, Jesus says that I'm going to die and all this kind of suffering is going to take place and Peter pulls Jesus aside. He says, no, you can't say that. We can't do that. We're going to lose the momentum of our movement and if I'm the rock and I'm going to build this thing, we can't, we can't do that. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. He's a rock at one moment. Listen to this because some of y'all are going to identify with this. He's a rock one moment and he's working with Satan the next moment. What am I saying? I'm saying that that opportunity that we create is one of the deadliest, vital elements that we have got to control. We've got to find victory in. We've got to get victory in this area right here or we create an opportunity and Satan will take advantage and build a citadel in our life. He will build it in our life and He will control us. Where do I get this whole citadel stronghold? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. It says it like this. For, through, uh, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. So He's speaking of something power, some spiritual war going on. Powerful enough to do what? Destroy strongholds citadels, garrisons, bunkers. What is that? What is that imagery? We don't even use that imagery today. 
It's that, it's a place in that ancient warfare where it was where you kept the gold, you kept the prince, you kept the king, you kept all the power. That's where it's the last thing to fall was the citadel. Was, was the last thing to fall was the stronghold. It was where you put your best troops because if that could survive, the kingdom could survive. And listen, he will build strongholds in our life. And he'll let us have 85% of our life. He'll let you come to church on Sunday. He has no problem with that as long as he can have your Saturday night. He'll let you pray and be an usher and serve somewhere as long as you'll serve him on your job. As long as he can have this much. That's all. He doesn't have to have it all. Just this much. Becomes a stronghold in us. Could be cultural patterns or assumptions that dominate our culture. Could be any number of things. A stronghold is what you trust in. It's what you hang your hat on. It's what you believe in. This word stronghold is only used one time in the entire New Testament, but it's used throughout the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. See, a stronghold, listen very carefully if you are still struggling with the definition of a stronghold. A stronghold is anything in your life that you haven't yet surrendered to God. A stronghold is anything in your life that you love more than God. Your job, your power, your possessions, your rank, your status, whatever it is, your relationships, whatever it is, they've got to be tore down. And if we give Satan any amount of opportunity, he's going to move into that space. He's going to build a stronghold in that space. And we will not find victory in that space. How do we find victory? Three things real quickly. Write them in the bottom of your notes. Number one, you've got to be willing to go to war. That means we can, we've got to stop pandering this. We've got to stop cuddling this. We've got to stop with, uh, you know what, this is my little part. I've given God 85%, so I'm going to keep this to myself. No, it is putting it on the table, and it's calling it warfare. I'm going to take it down. It's going to come down. I've got to be serious about this. Get this out of my life. In the first service, we have a, a great guy who wrote me an email this week. His name is Tom Reed. It's one of our greeters. He maybe greeted you when you came in the door today. He told me in an email that he's been struggling with alcoholism for 30 years this week. For 30 years, it has had a grip on him. He says, but really, the alcohol is not the issue. For 30 years, he's been free of drinking, but yet he still goes to, to, to AA meetings. Because he realizes this that this has been such a powerful stronghold in his life. He will continue to fight it for the rest of his life. He says, it's really been about me. The eye of ism is about, about myself. It's about me. And if I'm going to have freedom, if I'm going to break through this, I've got to attack it as if it is war. Most breakthroughs won't happen until there's a breakdown. Hopefully you won't reach that point. Number two, let Christ be your commander in chief, Savior and Lord in the battle. You're not going to white knuckle this. I've said this so many times. If there's not a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you're missing it. 
You will not counsel your way out of this. You will not medicate your way out of this. You will not motivate your way out of this. You will not unless there's a relationship with God Almighty through Jesus Christ. Let Him be a part of your life to give you the victory in in your life. I love what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. We have victory in Him and through Him. Number three, here's how we're going to get the victory. Capturing one thought at a time. One thought. One battle at a time. Today, whatever it is, whatever it is that's on your Velcro that you've been carrying around, whatever it is, is it anger? Man, you're holding on to that anger. Betrayal, bitterness, lust, desire. What is it? You're holding on to it. The thing you're going to do is you're going to have victory in the moment, in the thought. When it comes up, you capture that thought. You defeat that thought. Where do you get that, Mike? In the very passage that we just read, Second Corinthians. It says, capturing every thought and making it captive to Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. It comes down to the individual thoughts of our life. I mentioned that last week. So a thought, reap reap an action, so an action, reap a habit, so a habit, reap a character, so a character, and you reap a destiny. How do you capture your thoughts? You replace it with new thoughts. You know, I go back to my letters that I wrote in one just a couple of years ago, about four years ago, and then one when I was a sophomore. I wish I could say that these letters brought my broken relationship back together. They didn't. In fact, I'll say this. The person who received these letters is still far from me and far from God. And I think of them a lot. I pray for them when I think of them. I wish I could fix, this is differentiation, their problem, but I can't. I got my own problems to fix. But here's the, here's, here's, here's the good of it all. Even though it's not fixed, we're not fixed Even though that's not fixed, I have found freedom and victory. I can see this person now and my blood doesn't boil. I can see this person now and go up and shake their hand and greet them and engage them in a meaningful conversation. It's awkward, I have to say that, but I'm free. And that's what we're looking for, is freedom in your life and in my life. Would you bow your head with me? Whatever it is, it's got a part, a stronghold in your life, a citadel, something that maybe you've even given over to Satan and you've allowed space, space and time and thoughts and emotions. You've allowed that. You've given that to him you to hold that up right now in your mind and say, God, I, I'm carrying it and I need freedom from it. I need, I need you to help tear it down brick by brick, whatever it may be. Just lay it there before him. The band's going to sing over us. 
just remain in that spirit of prayer. Listen to these words. Allow God to begin to break down that opportunity that you've opened up to the evil one. Father God, this is your time.